few years ago, I used to have this chiropractor and he would ask me so many theological and religious and philosophical questions that I really thought I should have been charging him instead. And one day I come in and he's telling me about a story about going to a ball game and he starts looking up some of the Bible verses that people have signs up for and was telling me that half the time he couldn't make heads or tails out of what someone wanted him to know from these Bible verses. And so we kept talking and, you know, it was that kind of chiropractor who does like the pop and crack sort of stuff instead of the, like the tapping version. And I am not a big fan of the pop and crack kind of chiropractic. And I know that some of his goal was to distract me by asking me these questions. And it definitely worked. I don't remember all of the questions he asked. I don't remember exactly what we were doing. But I do remember that by the end of the conversation, one of the last things I said to him was that line that's out in the world about how we take the Bible too seriously to take it literally. And he finished up the last whatever he had to do. And he was so excited. And he looks at me after I sit up and says, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by you take the Bible too seriously to take it literally? So I am the Reverend Jane Gober. I am the rector here at Christ Church in Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, in the Diocese of Pennsylvania. And this is Right Questions. And today we have the extra bonus of our guest being the author of the companion book, Jennifer Gamber, I am so glad you are joining me here today. Will you tell my friends, anyone listening, a little bit about yourself? Sure. It's so great to be here with you, Jane, and to be part of this podcast. So I'm the Reverend Jennifer Gamber, and um, I serve um, the Bishop of the Diocese of Washington, and I was hired to start a school for Christian faith and leadership and along the way um, wrote a grant for Vitality. And so now direct about 24 congregations in returning to formative questions of who are we and who are our neighbors so that we can grow in um, greater vitality. I live on Capitol Hill with my husband, Ed, and my little dog, Ruby. And a fun fact about living on Capitol Hill is that we often hear um, helicopters going around the, the, the above our house um, morning, noon, and night, and sometimes have actually seen um, searchlights. So it's we never know who they're trying to chase. <laughs> um, on January 6th, that wasn't so much fun. But that was one thing I was really wasn't expecting about being on Capitol Hill is having, um, being on sort of the focus of, I I suppose, police or just interest of of very important people. Yeah. When I did my summer chaplaincy in uh, Washington, D.C. and was living near LaFont Plaza, and I'm pretty sure the townhouse I was house-sitting in um, was right under the flight path of the three helicopters that take the president back and forth from Andrews, because there was definitely a pattern to that. Well, Jennifer, you and I were talking beforehand about how we've crossed over for a really long time. I'm pretty sure if someone did a Venn diagram of Episcopal world, we would end up crossing over in like five or six different categories. That feels pretty accurate. Yep. 
Definitely, definitely. I think the first time we met was out in California um, at a conference with Christian educators. Right, the one with the bunny rabbits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember chase, chasing the bunny rabbits around the property. Yeah, there are a number of people I met for the first time there back when the group that's now Forma was known as NASED, but it looked like it said naked. So (laughs) that was part of the reason for the change. But um, so we're both been um, active in congregations in lifelong formation for a really long time. The second chapter of the revised version of your book, Your Faith, Your Life, is actually does a really good job of comprehensively, but not too complicatedly, trying to answer some of this question about how the Episcopal Church approaches scripture. And so I'm wondering if you could, for our guests, tell me about three or possibly four of the most important points um, about our, our approach, this church's approach to the Holy Bible. Um, so the way I approach the Bible in my both in my preaching and in my teaching in the area of formation is that it's a storybook. I understand. I know that it's more than just stories. It has um, it has history. It has sayings. Um, it has songs in it. But it's a collection of stories and texts that are treasured of a particular community, and that's how. I invite, that's how I read it, and that's how I invite others to read it as a treasure book. And not just a treasure book of other people's stories, but this is the treasure book of our own story, right? And so when I'm teaching it, or I myself am in, in praying with scripture, is that invites me into a stance of wonder. Wondering about where am I in that story, wondering where God is in that story, and wondering where that story is living in my life today. An example would be the book of Ruth, which is a really dear um, story to me, is knowing it's a story that that was meaningful to this group of people, of two women who were um, crossing boundaries, you know, from a place, from being a foreigner in one place in Moab to becoming, um, to bringing her daughter-in-law who was herself a foreigner then in the new land of Bethlehem. And so then it reminds me of who are the people that have been accompanying me? Who are the people who have gone, crossed boundaries with me into new places? And so those stories then become living and alive. And that's the wondering part. That really fits well in with you take the Bible seriously, um, not to take it literally, right? If you took it literally, it would just be that story of two women, um, or it would be the story of Adam and Eve, or it would be the story of Jonah. Um, Jonah in particular, I think, is a a piece of fiction, not um, it's more a, a novel than it is, say, the Gospels is a completely different genre of story. But it invites us. If it was only, it was if it was literal, it would be a dead story. To be honest, it would be something that happened many, many years ago. But these these are stories that continue to happen. Invite us into them, and so in that way, um, God has been speaking through millennia, right? And through through those stories, God hasn't stopped speaking. God speaks into our stories today. There's a practice that um, the congregation I grew up in had for a time, which was called, it was Christ Church in Poughkeepsie, New York. And we did the readings, prescribed readings for the day. But then they also told the gospel according to to, um, Christ Church. 
And so they added a, a different reading, which was a continual telling. And it was, it made, it made those stories much more alive. And um, I think that that's probably where I learned that um, God is continuing to talk. So I would say um, to enter the, to, that the, the, Bible is a treasure of stories that are still living today, that we're invited to enter them, enter them with wonder, and that, that, that I do believe that they're truly inspired by God, not written by letter by God, but inspired by God. That's an important sort of caveat in part of that discussion. You, one of our other core statements is the idea that everything necessary if where salvation is present in scripture, but not necessarily that everything in scripture is necessary for salvation. And one of the points you make in your book is about how um, this is people telling stories about their relationship with God and neighbor, and that that they weren't necessarily writing it like this was a prescription for how everybody should be doing this. They tell their bad stories as often as they tell their good stories. That's one of the things that always amazes me about scripture is just the way in which it's really like honest to self about their wor- the worst moments along with the best moments. And then the other thing that what you were just saying reminds me of is that very little in the Bible would fit into our modern library categories, fiction and nonfiction, etc. The categories of which we tend to assign things just wouldn't exist because you wouldn't have lots of people needing to know where to categorize things. One of the things about the, even just the phenomena of literalism is it assumes a lot of people with literacy. So the categories don't always mesh and sometimes they're they're actually new categories, right? Um, the Gospels themselves are, you know, the Gospel of Mark was the first to really make the mold of what it what the Gospel was all about. It's not a biography. It's not a first century biography in the same way that there'd be a biography of King Herod. That was completely different type of biography. Uh, the the gospel was about a person, but it's about the good news. It's more. It's more than just the stories that are there. It has a life beyond itself. Yeah, something I regularly point out is that when we call Acts of the Apostles Acts, we're just naming its category because Acts is actually an ancient biblical category of storytelling. It's telling everybody what kind of a story this is. So, in some ways, one of one of the places where our distance from the time of their collection and um, getting on to papyrus, etc., um, is the world has changed, and so sometimes um, how we being attentive and taking the text seriously and knowing things about all of this informs our knowledge of it and also helps bridge that gap of time. I think the other danger about um, biblical literalism is um, what are you actually going to take literally? Are you going to learn the Hebrew? Are you going to learn the Greek? And then are you going to be able to understand that there's word plays at play? You won't understand the, the Bible Newsflash, the Bible was not written in English <laughs> at first, right? Anytime you actually read, it's already been interpreted. So it's impossible to actually read the Bible literally. It reminded me of a story of some of the word plays that we might miss. And this goes into how, how do I read the Bible, right? And, and I'm, I think I'm pretty clear in the, in the book to read the Bible in community with one another. 
but one of the word plays would be the word Adam, right? And I remember telling a little boy during a um, Ash Wednesday service that the word Adam means, you know, red dirt, red soil, right? And um, then we, you know, put ashes on our forehead. And and then his, um, his mother, a few months later, said, oh, you know what? Her, her son blurted out to the rest of his classroom that his his bones are made at are red because <laughs> because he was made just like Adam was made by God and he just took he took that literally <laughs> it was just a word as a small child should that's a good developmental thing absolutely absolutely yeah. but I think reading it literally then you miss some of the word play that that really that deep sense in that particular word that we are people of the earth of creation out of creation we emerged and what what richness you have in that particularly now when we see how much we've the desecration of of creation um if you understand that sense of being made with creation you are actually um desecrating ourselves by not caring for creation as well what might be your second big point and my second big point so my first one what was what it was wonder um I think I gave you all four at first, so. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. My second point about the Bible, I would say that the Bible's meant to be read in community. That would be my second one. So my first one would be to enter it into wonder that is our stories um, inspired by God in a way that God continues to speak. And I guess my second point is the Bible should always be read in community. You can really be misled if you're reading it alone. Number one, the question would be, how am I to read it? Should I start from the first page? and go to the last page and read it through that way? Or should I be reading it by opening it? There was a time in which people would just open up the Bible, wherever page it was. I hear people doing this now. God's speaking to me by just the happenstance of where my finger is going to be. But I think the best way it really is to read in community the way those stories were first you know, written. And that can mean a number of different things, right? Reading in community could be reading with commentary could be reading forward day by day. Reading in community could mean being committed to a particular group of people that you read week in and week out. Or it could be reading the lectionary, for instance, using a podcast like Pray As You Go. That still would be reading in community. You might not be with another physical person, but you're hearing some reflections of people who have been sitting with scripture for a long time. Um, and it's mainly because it is a communal book. It's it's owned by humanity, right? One of the points there is that part of the reason why scripture is even written down is to be shared with other people. You know, there wasn't a way in which any of these texts were necessarily intended as, you know, like Jane's little personal note to Jennifer. They are intended for community and intended for community hearing and exploring and learning. Um, and voices and um, the community shapes a lot of the documents as well. Um, and so while we may have the amazing privilege to be able to have our own Bible books, to be able to look up individual words and individual verses online, while we may have the ability to decode that text, taken away from a community of discernment, whether that is academic discernment and study and inflow or a community living with the text and finding their lives in it and sharing their different perspectives, taking it away from that place of community, in some ways it's like it turns 
it turns off a whole lot of like the sound features of it. I don't know. I don't know if that's a helpful analogy. Yeah. You know, I find faith is never a private thing. Faith is never a private matter. And this is central to who we are as a people of, of God. Um, our relationship with God is never only about that. We are not, it's, it, we're a pe- peculiar people that we gather um, actually for the sake of others. And so I would say that an honest reading of the Bible is always one that's going to make us cross boundaries and share and be missional in the way we do our work um, and do our ministry. And so I mean, I think I think the Bible itself calls us out of out of the Bible to share that good news with others. Yeah. So it's whether whether you're interpreting the Bible, I think you can get very misguided by reading it on your own. Or it's the Bible, I think, is always asking us that question. So what? You know, what are you going to do with me? How is this going to impact your life? So it's never a, a private matter. We do that particularly with the Gospels in liturgy, the way in which we move it physically in most and in, in many Episcopal churches, that procession of the gospel out into the middle of the congregation and this word being said aloud and sometimes with lots of other extra pieces to it, candles, sometimes incense, elevation, crosses, and so on. We physically show that this is present in the middle of our lives. Sometimes I wonder if maybe we should read the rest of the lessons in different places in the space instead of just in front to really um, embody that. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. I want to, there's two things I want to say there, but one thing you just reminded me of was a time when I was, um, it was St. Anne's in Trexler town, Pennsylvania. And we were doing um, dramatic portrayals or dramatic reenactments of or re- dramatic readings of the Bible of gospels. And so we were doing the, the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, which remember is at night, Right. So we had the whole congregation close their eyes and imagine they were outdoors. And we had the two speakers out actually in the hallway with the doors closed and it was their voices were piped in. So the actual, the reading was happening outside of the sanctuary itself. And we were eavesdropping into an evening conversation, an evening intimate conversation between two people. So absolutely space matters hugely. The other thing that you reminded me of is, you know, in our liturgy, it's the words, but it's also the actions, right? Remember, we stand when we have the gospel is being read. And what do we say? Glory to you, Lord Christ. And you think about that, you're saying, Christ, you're present right here in the word. So even in that, it's a proclamation. If I had to make my third point here would be, you know, the Bible is a living document. And when you say that, when you say, praise to you, Lord Christ, you are actually proclaiming that Christ is present and alive and the words proclaim that very moment. You're saying this is a living text, right? And what I encourage people to do when they're, you know, it's interesting that we get, you know, the bulletins print out the, the, the readings, right? Um, I really encourage congregations actually to put those down unless you, you're hard of hearing and need that extra um, to hear what you're listening to is to read along. But if you don't need it, put it down and let your ears meet the words that are being said in the space between you and the and the lector. So the event is not on the page. It's in the hearing of the event, of the of the word. 
And so the event is within the community because it's a living word. Absolutely. One of the things I try to do when in preparing for sermons is actually using some audiobook versions I have of try to listen as much to the text at more than just my, you know, isolating single words and doing deep Hebrew and Greek lookups about everything, but really just listen to it and listen not only to the audio of the word, but listen to my feelings and what happens in myself as I'm listening to it as which it's just a different thing than reading it. Oh, absolutely. And so listening to what's coming alive in you, right? What, what is my, how is my body speaking? How is my life speaking to me as it meets this text, as it meets Jesus and the woman at the well? And you start thinking, your body starts remembering what it means to be thirsty, then what it means to be filled. And, and, and to encountering a stranger perhaps a stranger who maybe knows more than we thought they should know necessarily about us and wondering what that means. It's reminding me of a, uh, of a method of reading scripture, which is to imagine yourself in this, in the scene, wherever that might be. Um, it's very Ignatian way. It is a very Ignatian Bible study approach. Yeah. Um, I remember one of the most uh, effective sermons I've heard was a preacher who did that um, where Jesus was in Bethany and the woman was washing Jesus's feet, right, with perfume. And she walks into the space and smell and smells all the smells, the sweat, but then smells of perfume. And, and then her gaze is, you know, she just walked us through the whole space. And that changed that, that scripture reading for me forever. Gorgeous. Living Document also calls to mind that place wherein I guess what I want to say is that place where how we as living humans encounter it does change. Our response to particular text now is different than maybe the same response, the response to the same text, let's say, um, you know, in the Regency era or um, another, pick another time period um, over the course of scripture's life. So much so that sometimes reading some of the ancient Bible commentaries makes me just scratch my head and go, what? What are you getting from that? Um, so part of its livingness is that we continue, is that the life that's lived between us, I guess, changes because we change and have changed. Yeah, no, absolutely. What was coming to mind was, I think it's Jeremiah 29, which is to find the welfare in the city where you reside. and um, Jeremiah was talking to the people in Babylon, and so I will be revealing my political stances here. But, um, you know, when Trump wasn't somebody I, I voted for, um, and when he was elected, um, I know some people lifted up that particular verse. And um, I heard that verse in a very, it came alive for the first time, is how do I seek my welfare in a place where an elected leader is is far from the person I would have voted for, but but I'm still committed here to be an American and to make this a place for the welfare of everyone. And how do I do that now that I feel somewhat alienated from the political process? Um, but that's an example of a of a, a piece of scripture that just came alive in a very different way because of my lived experience. You're not the only one, and I also can see where someone 
whose political views maybe I don't share could maybe even find the same place in that. And wouldn't that be life-giving if we're trying to figure out how to live together? Yes. Oh, my word. Absolutely. And I don't know when this is podcast is going to be public, but in October, um, the Diocese of Washington has put together an electionary called um, for the B campaign. And it's for that very purpose to spend the month of October leading up to the election to finding those places of, of places where we can be uh, of agreement of being just, of being kind and being humble as we seek one another's welfare. This will come out right about the beginning of then. So I hope listeners take a Google for that. And maybe we'll work at this congregation on making some of those connections. So is there a fourth point you want to really draw, bring home? So I've said to enter it into wonder. Um, it's our stories, right? Um, and therefore inspired. And it's all interpretation. I would say that my fourth one is this. I do believe it is in the Bible that we will find our salvation. I do believe that. I think that faith is a matter of life and death. I know that to be true from my own lived experience, because when there are times when I have had significant challenges and difficulty in my life, that's when the stories that I had begun to learn before I could read that were the biblical stories so I grew up in a family that read the Bible at home, that those stories are what carried me. It's our family stories. And knowing that there's a life that is beyond myself, that there is a God that has cared for creation ever since the beginning and cares for us to the very end, and to the end that there is no end, for me has become, has saved me has literally saved my life. So I think that's literal. I also think that it saves our life in, in if we take the risk of sharing that love and sharing those stories with others, it can bind us together into a community of faith that is stronger. Um, so I, I do think that, that, the, that the Bible is saving. We had that reading in Deuteronomy, right? Yeah, uh, a week or two ago. Yeah, which is the way of life and the way of death. I think it was just like, yeah, choose life. Exactly, choose life, people. <laughs> and you know, the point of that, I think, the implication of that is that then it's important to take on a regular practice of reading. Absolutely, absolutely. And people will do that in very different ways. So. Um, I know the way that I find um, in a very busy diocesan life is to use pray as you go. Me too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was just telling the bishop, I said, yeah, my spiritual director tells me because I will often listen to it on the on in my commute to work. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I have to play it over again. I'm like, oh, shoot, I just got distracted. I got to listen to it again. Um, My spiritual director said, you know, isn't God um, worthy of your soul attention? (laughs) So it's like saying, that's really not giving time to God. But um, Marianne said, yeah, but isn't that the point of pray as you go, <laughs> right? It's supposed to be on the go. I, you know, for I, the way you engage it, I think is the way it's intended to be engaged 
more is actually just that prayer in the context of the world, that that life-giving place and not necessarily a place apart. Whereas I actually listen to it in a place apart. Um, I live in a rectory 30 steps from my office, so I have zero commute. Um, but I also learned years ago that my morning prayer practice works better if I do it first thing, except my brain is not clicking well enough to actually read anything first thing in the morning. And so Pray As You Go, which is an audio podcast, website, whatever, it's an audio program that's available daily, is perfect because it actually is just part of my wake-up routine in some ways. I get my breakfast together, I get my coffee together, and then I go sit at my home altar. My cat is absolutely convinced this, one of my cats is absolutely convinced this is cat attention time (laughs) and will meow at me if I don't go take this time and listen to that. But pray as you go. You know what? Honestly, I'm going to like off, since we have both been enthusiastic about this, I think I want to offer that jointly as a suggestion to anyone who's listening to this podcast about something that they could do in their life. How do I take on a daily biblical reading that isn't just making me scratch my head every single day? And um, we should say that Praise You Go is done by Irish Jesuits. Um, and so it's not our program. It's not an Episcopal program. It's not even an Anglican program, but it's gorgeous. So maybe they want, maybe the listeners, the practice they want to try is finding that Pray As You Go and whatever method works for you, finding it, it's pretty easy to find, and committing to trying to do that maybe, you know, 10 days out of the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it's only um, 10 to 12 minutes, and it has a combination of both um, song and um, scripture and reflection, um, so it's easy to enter into, and then you can also go back and listen to other ones, um, other podcasts. They also have some great uh, longer examine reflection questions that you can go to, but it's a great, it's a rich source. It's, um, it's, uh, they are, they are on a lectionary, just not on our lectionary. Exactly. Which, which leaves me out of a little bit of the discussion of people who are talking about what the morning prayer reading was this day, but I love it so much. It's life-giving to me and helps me connect with God and neighbor and meaning and centers my day. So I I'm a big fan of that. I think another, I would say that another, if we invite people into another practice would be reading. um, If you're someone who goes to church um, on a Sunday um, or Saturday evening um, is to read the lectionary um, that's coming up so that you hear it for yourself before you hear it preached. I would guarantee you that you will hear the word preached on that Sunday a little bit differently once you're familiar with um, the text and choose one of them, right? Don't read, you don't need to read all four, but choose one of them, perhaps the gospel, if that's what you would like to, to, to focus on and do that for a, for a, a month. Um, and then notice, you know, what am I hearing differently um, and you maybe you'll ch- check in with the preacher afterwards. I think um, I know that as a preacher, I appreciate um, thoughtful engagement about the word preached after that Sunday. I really do too. And I like that suggestion. Um, there's a place at which, as a preacher, we tend to spend a significant amount of time with a text, but most of our guests have just like 
heard it for the first time, they've noticed hearing it in that moment, possibly. Um, particularly if it's not one of the more big epics or a pro- constantly repeated parable or so on. But um, I think that's a that's a helpful gift to people who engage with congregationals congregations using a lectionary reading format. So I thank you. I'm so glad you said yes. It was good to see you. At least if people listening to this don't know, we can see each other while we're recording this. So it's good to see you. And I'm going to review your four points. First of all, the of one of the most important things about how we approach scripture is wonder. Wonder through what is a storybook collection, even the parts that aren't stories in the way that we necessarily think of storybooks. Um, secondly, is that it, scripture and the Bible is intended to be discerned and read and shared in community. And what community means means a wide variety of things. It can mean both relying on commentators and scholars and those who've read it before us. It can also mean reading it together in a space and hearing each other's responses. The third point was that it's a living document. It is not just an old artifact from which we, you know, scrape off little bits from. It's a living document and we live with it. And then fourthly, you proclaimed with a lot of joy that it is a text of salvation, that we find rescue and purpose and meaning and um, a assistance on our journey to the reign of God, the kingdom of God, to union with God and all people in Christ through the text. Maybe not always in the way that we expect to. I would probably argue most most potently when it's not the way that we expected, but it is a text of salvation and a gift to our life together. Absolutely. It's been a joy to be with you. <laughs> Super. Yeah. So I'm going to close us in a prayer, and I'm going to close us with a prayer from a biblical scholar, because that feels appropriate. Uh, Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, and the folks in my congregation currently or the folks in a previous congregation are familiar with this prayer. I pray it pretty calm almost every time after a sermon. So let us pray. Healing and Sovereign God. Overmatch our resistant ears with your transforming speech. Infiltrate our jadedness and our fatigue. Touch our yearnings by your words and through your out loudness. Draw us closer to you. We are ready to listen. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.